I've never been so excited by cement and sand in my life. But seeing it kind of take form physically, like for me, it's a, it's a bit of a, a dream materializing. This is Hope and Dread. I'm Charlotte Burns. And I'm Alan Schwartzman. This is a program about the tectonic shifts in power in art. We want to hear from people who are making change and people who are resisting change. Artists today have more power than ever before. And in today's episode, we'll talk to some of them about how they're using it. Lots of artists are questioning the way the system works and their roles within it. You'll hear from artists who are using their power and their platform in different ways. From Michael Armitage, who's expanding the canon and our understanding of art history, to Hank Willis Thomas and Jackson Pollis, whose respective collaborations sit firmly at the centre of American politics. Meanwhile, Tiffany Shah pushes back against the commodification of artists. First, raising an important question is the artist Issy Wood, reading here from her book, But Who's Counting?, which is a collection of her blog posts between 2019 and 2020. I keep being told that the days of an artist remaining oblivious to their output as a monetizable commodity are long gone. An artist should know her prices in at least three currencies, should keep a tight grip on ideas of value and scarcity and long-term investment and brand. She should study the game in as much as she is both player and pawn. Player or pawn, let's dive in. We heard from the painter Michael Armitage at the beginning of the show. Michael Armitage is one of the most exciting, dynamic, and potentially transformative painters to have emerged in recent decades. He founded the Nairobi Contemporary Art Institute in 2020. It's a nonprofit exhibition space and research center created with the intention of supporting contemporary art in the region and of better preserving East African art history. But, and Kai is not about Michael, purposefully so. Here he is with more detail about how the foundation came into existence. Nkai, or Nairobi Contemporary Arts Institute, began as an idea in 2017 uh, when, with Mukami Korea, we hosted The Gathering, which was an event where 52 artists from 12 different countries came together to talk about things that were similar or different about practising you know, within the arts all over the continent. In the lead-up to that, I was talking to a lot of Kenyan artists and just asked them what in their minds they felt would be a kind of beneficial addition to all of the things that are happening in Nairobi. And the two things that kept coming up was a not-for-profit art space for doing exhibitions outside of the commercial sector. And secondly was um, an educational institution that provided a different type of education to the ones that are already available on the ground. And that really was the beginning of, of Nkai. How daunting is it as an artist to start dealing with the logistics of developing a non-profit space? Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, for someone uh, like me, where maybe my, my natural state is alone in a studio with a box of paints and a brush, the gathering at first was already one step outside of my comfort zone. But 
then taking the next step and actually moving towards a physical space, it was clear that what was needed is an amazing team um, on the ground in Nairobi. And, and they really deserve the credit for, for bringing things together and for the way that our program is developing in very difficult times. The upcoming exhibition at Nkai will be called Muli Akili Naroho, or Body, Mind and Spirit. It tracks the subtleties of the shifting history of East African figurative painting since the 1970s. For me, it was important to speak to a history that also had stylistic and conceptual shifts throughout it, because that's something that people really never talk about and think of. There's always this phrase which drives me mad of African modernism that seems to bungle together every single idea that's been spoke about on the continent over a 50-year period. It's, it's a little bit insane. So allow me to add a little bit to um, the madness created in Michael over this term African modernism. So modern art is something that is very definitively born in the West it is born of industrialization and the development of a leisure class that that economy made possible. So that created a room for a collector class and for an art that would be rooted in the issues of art rather than the interests and needs of the patrons who might have been commissioning works in the past. If you look at one of the critical turning points in modern art, it's cubism, where you see a total breakdown of pictorial space. And so much of that fractal shifting and deconstruction of space is directly linked to the interests of the Cubists in African sculpture. And so you have the Western modern artists looking to the traditional African sculptor, seeing what they see in that work, removed from the actual use, function, and history of such objects, and objectifying them. Yeah, so the phrase is um, not only incorrect, it's sort of an insult in many ways because you take inspiration from a culture and don't even credit them in the footnotes. It's all upside down. If you look closely at Michael's work, what you begin to see is this equal presence between the image in the foreground and the space in the background or the figures and the environment. And this, to me... I've always seen as being a result of his own way of experiencing experience itself as kind of emanating energy where every component uh, is equally important. But you could also see that as sharing uh, certain key qualities with what the Cubists sought to achieve. It's also speaking between two different cultures, which Michael talks about really clearly in this next section. He grew up in Nairobi in the 1980s. He moved to boarding school in the UK when he was 16. And he recalls having his first rather underwhelming experience of seeing Western art in the flesh as a young student. I remember being taken around the National Gallery by a tutor of mine on my foundation course and being shown Titian's, I think it's uh, Diana shooting Actaeon. Um, with a bow and being told that that was the greatest painting ever made and at that time I, I just I was like well it's brown it's like it's not very good you know it's not very well painted the proportions are all wrong it's a bit scuzzy I know plenty of people who can use color better than this guy and that's because my kind of my experience of art was very different to the art that I was being introduced to and there were elements of taste and appreciation of 
what other artists were doing that I, I hadn't developed at all and hadn't been exposed to. And it took me a while, to be perfectly honest, to find anything in Western art that I related to strongly. More than 20 years later, in the same city, Michael was himself the subject of a major exhibition, Paradise Edict, at London's Royal Academy of Arts last year. Visiting the show was a little like seeing a magician lift the curtain, revealing his tricks. A section of the exhibition space was given over to a show within a show, a smaller version of Muilia Kilina Rojo. Michael generously dedicated the space to showing some of the artists from East Africa who have influenced his own work. The guys that were showing at the academy, as in Muilia Kilina Rojo, in that, in that room, the, I, I knew all of their work growing up. So that was my history that I was coming from. And quite frankly, it was a little bit difficult wanting to speak to that while making work within a, a Western art education, just simply because that history wasn't available. And so when thinking of work in its context and the way it was used by someone like Mi Gishugu, but when you then come up against a different culture with a different language and thinking through sociopolitical things through a different language that fits this other story told, it begins to be very difficult to see and appreciate the considerations of these artists and that history for what it is, as opposed to this other framework provided. So like that, that was something that, you know, that, that I went back and forward with through, through art education. How did that make you feel? What emotions did that bring out in you? Sure, it was frustrating sometimes, but the things that were frustrating weren't, weren't the fact that people didn't know these artists. I mean, I was coming to a society with hundreds of years of, of, of art making that I had no clue about. I recognized that there was something missing on both sides. But the thing that was frustrating was surprisingly regularly a reference that would come up for me to go back and look at was Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, as if that spoke to something true or would provide me something to kind of work with or work against. And I only say that because it came up several times throughout my eight years of art education. And I remember first reading it and thinking, why on earth is anybody asking me to read this stuff? You know, like it's beautifully written, but it's kind of horrendous. Michael talks about the frameworks through which we understand history and his conception of just how much we miss. Part of what he's drawing attention to now, though, is not just the shifts in styles that we fail to see. He's also positioning the foundation within a longer lineage of artists who create cultural initiatives within and for their communities. We're there to build on a lot of extraordinary other programmes and initiatives that have been started by artists like Ilimo and Jao at Payapa, who started Payapa in the 60s and it's still ongoing today where they've supported a phenomenal number of artists under their roofs and done exhibitions and um, been a real cultural hub for the region. These traditions are not beyond society. They're often a strategic part of its formation. Elimo and Jao, not only through his paintings and thinking about ideas around Pan-Africanism and claiming language to an indigenous culture, claiming a religious history to an indigenous culture, ideas of working together that were very prominent within the politics of these new emerging states around the continent. Those also permeated into their thinking and their work. And you really see that through the adoption of particular types of language and religious ideas, religious motives, but also socio-political ideas. 
In an industry where people have water fountains, wings and entire galleries named after their philanthropic contributions, it is notable that none of the artists we've interviewed really want their names attached. These artists are quicker to credit the coalitions surrounding them. This is nothing less than a pivot from me to we, which is radical within the field of art, particularly after coming off of so many recent decades of the market defining value and value way beyond financial value, but of social importance and and stratification and so on. And so, you know, sometimes with artists too, egos and the um, strengths of personality get in the way. This is a generation not only of artists, but of curators and directors who also deflect away from themselves, referring to those who have preceded them, those who work with them, and those who are helping to lead the way into the future. You can't create change by yourself. I mean, (laughs) you can try, but good luck to you. In many ways, I feel more like a kind of a facilitator in my role. You know, it's, it's also not necessarily just about change. It's also about recognizing what's good that's there and amplifying that. For me, I, I feel like the responsibility of having some form of success is, is that you have a community which you're part of and, and indebted to. And maybe, maybe now because people from communities which have been underrepresented and subsequently are from communities that need more support if more artists are being recognized and do have the means to support their own community and and that's more visible that's just probably a consequence of you know the, the way that people are looking at things now the growth of the art system is unprecedented and some of the artists who have benefited from it are aware of just how unusual this moment is and yet how limited still There are artists within this generation who are recognising their platform and their power as conveners. They're clear-eyed about what it takes to create change. Here's the artist Hank Willis-Thomas. The reason I think I'm always like, and maybe others don't want to be the hero is because we see our own limitations. That's why it takes all of us to be the leaders, not an individual. But what we don't want to do is once we get into the museum or institution, we don't want to be the monster, so to speak. A lot has been lost in this kind of commercial kind of obsession with equity, quote unquote, uh, that is not really about actually inclusion as much as it is the appearance of inclusion and the inclusion of like a limited elite class of of black people who can now have access and now we're we're in the club <laughs> but what about our cousins what about our, our nieces and nephews and our, our 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 family obviously the more people who are have access to capital the more that they can share it if they choose to <laughs> but if the system discourages us from sharing it then what alan we've had a lot in the museum episodes about the problems with philanthropy. And now we're hearing more about the ways in which artists are doing it themselves, focusing on communities. A question I have is why this generation is behaving so differently than previous boom generations. I'm thinking especially of artists in New York in the 1980s, for instance, or the YBAs in London in the 1990s, many of whom just used their power to increase their property portfolios. What's the difference? The 1980s was really the... um, 
the beginning of the rise of this massive consumption-driven market that we find ourselves in today. Amongst artists who emerged in the early 80s, there was the sense that they could have their cake and eat it too. They made work that was political, but they could also make money at it. At a certain point, it seemed more like they were more driven by sitting at the table at the benefit than raising questions and doubts about the very financial system that was supporting them. And so now, decades later, we find a very different generation emerging. I mean, you see this sense of collectivity and a sense of greater responsibility toward community, toward world, toward environment within a younger generation, whether they're involved in art or not. But within this generation of artists, we see countless instances in which artists have seen the creation of platforms for social and community engagement, empowerment, and self-sustenance as central to their work. So 1993, you had Rick Lowe in Houston create Project Row Houses, which has become a model for so many of the artist-driven entities that have been created since. He bought a whole city block of houses and turned them into arts and cultural community. Candace Williams' Cassandra Press in Los Angeles has probably the greatest reading list you could find regarding all different perspectives on social and political activism. Julie Morettu and Paul Pfeiffer founded Deniston Hill in upstate New York, which is a residency program that's all driven by a sense of community. Mark Bradford in Los Angeles created Art and Practice, which is all about bringing art and social services to artists. Um, it goes on. Lauren Halsey created Summa Everything. Titus Kafar, a student freshly out of Yale, created a community center. He moved his studio to the most blighted part of New Haven, and he created Next Haven, which is one of the most compelling artist residencies and centers anywhere. It's not coincidental that all of these are black artists. All these are artists who, who, who did not see the same potential for themselves in the art world and the art market as they were going. So they seized control. They, um, they're of another generation. They have a different sense of empowerment. And each of these artists sees what they do in their activistic work is directly linked to what they do within their artwork. I think the best example of that perhaps is Kevin Beasley, who was invited to be part of Prospect New Orleans. And instead of making an artwork per se, he took the money, tripled it with some of his own money, and bought a plot of land in the Ninth Ward, and he created a garden there. And he spent a lot of time in the community looking at previous models of community building that didn't succeed in order to have a clearer understanding of how to build something that would be lasting. Culture is central to a thriving democracy. As we heard in episode three, Controlling Culture, governments quickly clamp down on it when they want to start bringing a population to heal. Lots of artists today are aware of that power. Let's go back to Hank Willis Thomas. Hank is an artist whose photographs examine the representation of black bodies through American history and whose public sculptures are often uplifting symbols of black power. 
He also works in collectives to try to create more nuanced political engagement across America. Artists are always and have always been doing civic work, but it's seen on the periphery. It's seen as something that's like kind of on the side or even a bonus. You know, we know that the arts are, all, are not really often very well supported, funded. And there's no wonder that we wind up in situations where we have no new or good ideas for solving, you know, age-old problems because we're not investing in the people who are actually doing the work and actually helping the stories of the research that artists are doing in their, pra in their practices come into the world and applying them to, to politics. I believe that there's no culture without art and you can't have civil society without a culture. Art has been impacting culture and therefore civil society is being impacted. I just think we should be more conscious of that kind of relationship. Hank is one of the founding members of the artist-led group Four Freedoms, which was created in 2016 as a super PAC in the run-up to the presidential election. Super PACs, for those who don't know, are usually partisan political vehicles used to raise unlimited funds from donors. Four Freedoms registered as a political action committee and began raising funds for national advertising, especially focusing on America's heartlands. Most of the ads were original works created by contemporary artists to provide information on hot-button topics like gun control, reproductive rights, racism, gender equality, and freedom of expression. The point was to move the conversation beyond sound bites. Good art asks questions, and good design answers them, but the quality of the questions do impact the, the quality of the answers, and we don't think that we're asking enough good questions in, in mainstream society. And that's where we need to promote artist work more so that we have these critical questions being asked. It seemed radical to me that artists would form super PACs, which are often associated with political corruption, and repurpose them by bringing a coalition of creative, artist-led views to bear. But when I asked Hank about this, he responded by pointing out the obvious. It's important to point out that artists are also easily corrupted. You know what, <laughs> a lot of the same people who have the excess capital to impact the storytelling of politicians <laughs> have the same <laughs> capital to impact the storytelling of, of artists. And so I was at the Aspen Institute and I was like doing an artist talk and I was like, wait a minute, you're in the political world and you're also in the art world? and the two rarely meet except in your household. <laughs> and I recognize that there is kind of, a, I don't want to say like a, a shadow world, but there is a world where like, you know, a lot of stuff happens with, with funny money and art <laughs> and the same in politics. And without villainizing anyone, how can we start to recognize like the power that actually congeals around these worlds, which are all do ultimately come back to storytelling and how we frame the world through the stories we tell, how we frame what's important, who's important, and uh, what we should be investing in. You know, So that's really what got us to be excited about Four Freedoms in, as, a, as an artist-led super PAC. 
It's really interesting to hear artists talk about power in this way and be aware of the seats at the table. The engine driving the growth of artistic power is often money, whether via the market or the money that swelled the museums and biennials, which in turn need more art to fill them. In her book, But Who's Counting?, the artist Issy Wood writes about the fact she's simply benefiting from a broken system. So I asked her what she meant. I imagine the broken system I was talking about is just capitalism. I suppose every now and then I think about where my money comes from and that there's a lot of dirty money around and though I pay my taxes and that feels sort of like a kind of redemptive phenomenon to pay taxes with money that may or may not come from weapons or oil, or screwing the planet in a myriad of ways. The art school I went to, which was Goldsmiths, was the kind of place that thought painting was trash. Trash for greedy people, and we were encouraged to become artists, but not to make money from our art. Issy and I talked a bit about what Hank says, that artists are just as easily corrupted, and how slippery that might be for any of us to really define. It's difficult because I think... Nobody is, is ever going to really flag the moment you've been corrupted. Only you know, and maybe a couple of close friends, in my case, my art dealer knows when I've betrayed myself. So I don't, I don't know, I may have already been corrupted. I certainly betrayed myself, I try not to, but it's hard when your money comes from such specious sources. It, it's hard to insist on integrity in certain zones and and pay your studio rent in others. It seemed really important to acknowledge power within this show and the different forms of it, how power works, how artists are being affected by it, how they're using it. Issy's an example of a young artist who's been in the full glare of the market frenzy and her writing really captures that weird power dynamic. What she wrote about players or pawns really jumped out at me and she very kindly agreed to be interviewed just last week. We'll hear more from Issy in the next episode about the market as well as later in the series. But Alan, the question I wanted to ask you here was this idea of artists being inside systems or consumed by systems or beside them is a different kind of way of talking. You know, hearing artists talk about power in that way seems really interesting to me. For me... It's thrilling to envision the potential for art to guide how society can start to see worlds that we know really only through the lens of politicians and professional talking heads. Yeah, I love Hank saying, wait, you're in this room and in this room and so am I. So what does that say? And it's a sort of behind the scenes look at things. We imagine these things are so separate, but they're often the same people in the same rooms. And I think what Hank is saying is I recognize that I can have real power in this situation and I want to be sensitive to it and I want to be able to use it as effectively as possible. What we're talking about here are systems of power and how they overlap. Back in episode three, we spoke to the artist Tiffany Shah, who recently left Hong Kong for fear of her safety. She reminded us in that episode that art never exists within a vacuum, especially during times of political flux and turmoil. Even if artists aren't making the kind of work you'll see in an evening auction anytime soon, there are still relentless demands on them to produce. I kind of think of it as more like surviving the systems and like surviving these times. 
Because I think that there's also a certain appetite for an artist who comes out of situations of political repression. <laughs> there's this like strange desire, I think, to program artists to kind of speak from political places like this and the sort of axis of power, of course, where the museums sort of are situated in terms of thinking about democracy and things and self-determination, which are, and human rights, which are really important things. But I see those projects as like fundamentally separate from the project of what museums are doing, kind of in the same way that I see political action as, as kind of, the center of political action is not in the cultural sector. The center of political action is within the streets. A nice rebuttal to the overzealous production cycle of the art world can be found in the artist residency Tiffany set up, called Speculative Place. She says it's all about a DIY grassroots approach to creating art spaces. Sometimes it's also about rest uh, at Speculative Place because there's so much of a pressure to constantly produce and make something profound for an artist. So a lot of building a, a kind of alternative to the institution or, or alternative to kind of like a commercial art space was to de-incentivize the builder of such spaces to like gain from the work that gets made. I know that some residencies ask for, say, an artwork at the end of their stay, uh, but we don't ask for that. The only thing that we ask for is a PDF, which is sort of like, you know, this thing that can be printed, but also can be immaterial and it just documents that the artist or writer or filmmaker was here during a specific time. And I joke that it can be a PDF of like receipts that people accumulated during their time here. We try to keep it really elastic in terms of a space and we're clandestine maybe is the word. <laughs> we don't really reveal too much about like what happens in the residency because not everything has to be done for content, has to be done for the look of content or like some kind of appearance of productivity and trying to kind of thwart documentation in that way. <laughs> the utter lack of efficiency is refreshing. We live in a world of hot takes engulfed by an onslaught of content. But the artists in today's show remind us that not only can art be a galvanising civic force, it can also simply hold space for ambiguity and a certain slowing of thought. I'm very suspicious in myself and in others of knee-jerk reactions to global phenomena. I'm always a little slow to take the temperature, which I attribute mainly to not having Twitter. But then Twitter also sounds like a hellscape. So I appreciate being spared the hottest takes in favour of feeling slightly safer with the more lukewarm takes. I'm a solipsistic person who understands the world through my own feelings. Pretending otherwise feels grandiose and uh, a lie. So it feels like I'm, I'm spending most of my weeks dealing with a trope from the 16th century and that that's how delayed I am in my reactions to things, the, that I need 500 years breathing space between something happening in the world and then my reaction to it, but I also think that's okay. Amidst the pressure to produce, create, be nice, show art, say yes, artists are doing well if they manage to stay true to their own practice and voice. I was aware in scripting the show of how easily we can turn art and artists into commodities, whether that's the market or museums or perhaps 
a journalist agenda. But tidy narratives are beside the point. Even when working in coalitions, most artists have an unusually close relationship with discomfort. A thread running through each of these artist initiatives is that they create more uncertainty in a way, bringing light to what we don't know or fully understand. Here's Hank Willis-Thomas. And that's exactly why we feel like groups like Four Freedoms and others should exist so that we can make space for, you know, these nuanced conversations, make space for being uncomfortable. Four Freedoms evolved into an even more inclusive group called the Wide Awakes. What is so radical about this group is that anyone can join. You don't need to be an artist. You can go to the website and download the starter pack right now. Still focused on greater political engagement, the Wide Awakes is an open source network. It wants to reimagine the future through creative collaboration. But something so open to all and transparent must be difficult to control. Perhaps that's the point. It's a bit messy, like democracy. Less judgment, more action. That's what Hank's calling for. While we are chasing the virtue train, (laughs) we might be missing a lot of other very important life lessons along the way because the virtues that we are often ascribing to can go back to Puritanism. (laughs) They definitely have a root in colonial values of purity, of a certain kind of... Yeah, virtue that must be kind of bestowed in order for one to be accepted in society. And and at some point, if we really played that out, no one would be <laughs> welcome in our society. And that goes back to a lot of the basic Christian values around those of us who have sinned being seen as human beings. This brings us back to the artist Jackson Pollis, who we spoke to in episode two, American History Axed. Jackson is a core collaborator of an artist group called the New Red Order, or the NRO. Like the Wide Awakes, this group is radically inclusive. Anyone can join this public secret society, which operates with networks of informants and accomplices to create grounds for indigenous futures. Both groups take their cue from past political movements. The Wide Awakes is named after the abolitionist organisation that, in 1860, helped elect Abraham Lincoln by staging an event of more than 10,000 people marching through the streets of Chicago. The NRO takes its name from a historical group called the Improved Order of the Red Men, a group that was revived in the 1930s as a whites-only fraternity. In its current reimagining, the NRO grapples with that history in order to put it all on its head. The Improved Order of Red Men is a secret society that claims lineage from the Sons of Liberty who claim responsibility for the Boston Tea Party. Those people who dressed up as Indian participated in acts of plain Indian, dressing up as Mohawks to kind of, in one sense, disguise themselves as savages. There is this idea that they needed to differentiate themselves from the Europeans, from the British. So in order to do so, they became American and was more American at that time than a savage so that they dressed themselves up as native people through tea in the harbor. This, of course, was a key moment in American foundational history when the Boston Tea Party protested British taxes and took a step towards the independence of the United States. As Jackson points out, America is founded on indigenous appropriation and erasure. This is serious stuff, but the group uses humour to get its point across. One of the influences of ours is Vine Deloria, who wrote this essay, short essay, Indian Humour, in which he articulates that we're brought up in a commingling of humour and deadly seriousness, 
where humor is a way to kind of imagine or to actualize a different kind of reality. So we see that humor has a potential for changing realities for indigenous people if it's part of the process and maybe part of the end result. Can decolonization be funny? Can big issues be treated with humor? Or is laughter a graveside pirouette? The humor in some ways is necessary in order to try to hold those opposing realities at the same time. It becomes a coping mechanism or a faculty which could be developed as an artistic practice as well. It's involved in with, with trying to understand one's own relationship and reorient and, and make one's own reality, which I think is something that I would like to hold on to. Scripting this series, it occurred to us how much of the conversation in previous episodes has been about the past and about history. This episode, more so than the others, felt focused on the present and possibilities for the future. I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, there have been numerous times in the 20th century where artists worked hand in hand with revolutions and they ultimately got sacrificed by them. And this is a first moment where we see artists in a position to and committed to actually making change and change that serves both art and the wider communities. And so that's a kind of previously unknown power. And artists are looking back at what's come before whilst creating new possibilities for today and thinking about tomorrow. Because they want it to work, you know? These, these are things that are not being done in vacuums. They're being, they're, they're in the community they're, and they're tested out in the community. And these are mostly communities these artists live in. One of the other really heartening things about this episode today is the sort of insistence by Tiffany Shaw on the value of doing nothing, of creating a space for rest and not having to comment, not having necessarily to act, but perhaps to just digest. Indeed, I think the flip side of creating community activism through one's position as a successful artist also recognizes on the other hand, that the patient needs nursing, nurturing, the space to make mistakes. This, these are things that the market denied. They saw them as capital sins that banished an artist from a market. But really what art needs above many other things is the opportunity to accidentally discover penicillin. Here closing out today's episode is the artist Michael Armitage. He's reminding us of that rich artistic tradition of generosity. And indeed, it's something we might all learn from. I genuinely feel that the artists that I've respected and looked towards have generally had a very sort of hands-on impact in their own spheres and their, their own worlds. And not only for artists, I just think that of people in general. We're part of something bigger than ourselves and everybody benefits, including yourself, if you're inclusive of other people within any good things that come to you. Tune in to Hope and Dread every second Wednesday and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Follow us on social media for related show content. Tell us what you think at art and underscore media. 
Hope and Dread is brought to you by Art and, the new editorial platform created by Schwartzman and. The executive producer is Alan Schwartzman, who co-hosts the show together with me, Charlotte Burns of Studio Burns, which produces the series. Robert Bound is our associate editor. Holly Fisher mixes and edits the sound. Additional research and support has been provided by Julia Hernandez and Ali Nemirov. Theme music by the inimitable Philip Glass. Glass.